It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 174, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jack Algier is the farm director for Stone Barn Center in the New York's lower Hudson Valley. Actively farming since the early 1990s, Jack has been the director at Stone Barn since its inception 15 years ago. Jack oversees the extensive and diversified farm operations, including indoor and outdoor vegetable production, small grains, and a diverse array of livestock. Most of the farm's produce and meat is sold to the partner restaurant Blue Hill, and we dig into how this relationship has benefited both the farm and the restaurant. We also take a look at how the vegetables are integrated into the livestock and pasture operation. We talk about the half-acre Gutter Connect greenhouse and how that differs from high tunnel production. And we take a look at the compost heating system for the propagation operation in the context of coming up with cool new ideas for how to use tools and resources on the farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, and lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production vermontcompost.com and by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com. Jack Algier, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Uh, thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. So glad you could join me here at the last day of July when we're recording this. I really appreciate your making the time I know it's farming season, and so I'm I'm especially appreciative. Of course, it's my pleasure, and you know it's always farming season, I suppose. So you know to get to talk to like-minded people always makes me feel good and feel recognized. So thank you for the invitation. Well, and always farming season—that's what you get for building a twenty-two thousand square foot greenhouse, Jack. <laughs> this is true. That's true. I thought it was a good idea at the time, and then when we started not getting to go to Costa Rica in the middle of winter, that sort of changed my focus. Yeah, the good news is that you can farm all winter, and the bad news is that you can farm all winter, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's such an oasis, though. I think, you know, it's still our proudest space, as complex as this farm has gotten, that greenhouse is, is you struck it right away as sort of our epicenter. So, Jack, I'd like to just zoom out a little bit and have you tell us about Stone Barn Center and what's going on there. I mean, both at the the larger level and then on the on the farm. Well, I'll tell you that uh, you know this is our fifteenth growing season here at Stone Barns. We, for those uh, listeners that don't know us or where we are. We're hailing here from the lower Hudson Valley. We're about 30 miles north of New York City, so still within the suburban pockets of Westchester County. And the nonprofit sits on 80 acres, about 88 acres of ground within about 1,500 acres of park preserve land that has been in preserve for the past 150 years. So it's quite an anomaly of a space first off, and uh, Stone Barns is a nonprofit. So we incorporated as a nonprofit in 2001 originally, but then we opened our doors in 2004 after building out the farm and restoring these uh, gorgeous stone barns for were named after. So 
really this place is a functioning nonprofit to help improve the way people think about farming and eating and building culture. We have a very diversified farm operation. As we mentioned a minute ago, four-season greenhouse production, a lot of season extension, several acres of outdoor field crop production, small grains, and then a pasture management program that's mixed species that covers about 350 acres of preserve land. That's the farm operation, and that essentially is uh, designed to stay as revenue neutral as it can be while providing the best possible content for training farmers, for public visitors to get a sense of what a good generative farming system can look like in a modern world. We have all sorts of different programmatic activities um, with professionals coming here to do uh, retreat work. We have a fellowship program, a pretty extensive high school program. In fact, we just recently released a a national curriculum called Food Ed that is uh, for junior and high school students to be used uh, across the country that sort of helps people understand food system issues and relationship to farming. And we have a few enterprises on the property otherwise with a store and a cafe and a for-profit partner in Blue Hill at Stone Barns, Dan Barber and David Barber and Laureen's Restaurant. That is our kind of companion, uh, for-profit companion in this adventure. So, yeah, it's a beautiful mixed environment that is open to the public all the time. We always say that, you know, the only time there's really nobody here is between about 3 and 5 a.m. And then the the guard kind of picks right back up again. Now, you mentioned the restaurant that's there at the farm, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And you guys have kind of a unique partnership with them. To say the least, it is an extraordinary partnership that I think, honestly, it's been what has catalyzed a lot of the change at this place. You know, the value of nonprofit, agricultural nonprofits for education, I think is really critical right now because there are so few farmers out there and the public really needs to be able to see the interface and the connection again so that these farmer, all the farmers that are trying to make it in the world that are coming on your show can get some attention and be recognized. So the nonprofit has a great value in that way, but what I think catalyzes it mostly is that we have this for-profit entity that's driving a fair market value exchange. So even though we consider ourselves a training facility, essentially an institute, we're working at full production speed all the time for one of the highest quality rated restaurants in the world, and and also we hold that to all the rest of the communities and people that we serve. So the restaurant, especially Dan and I in particular, have had a lot of uh, creative exchange over the years, and we've built so much together. A lot of the things that have happened creatively in the breeding and development work that we've done on the farm has uh, reflected itself in the amazing dining experience that he's been able to create and obviously all the literary work that he's done around our exchanges, the things that we've done in all these years and the innovations and creative exercises that happen just to try new things, break the box. That's been fun and challenging. 
And we've learned a lot from the things that we've failed at. And it really doesn't matter one way or the other, fail or succeed, I suppose. It's more that we're learning from it and, you know, trying to unravel this kind of narrow-minded food system we've put ourselves in. When you talk about breaking the box when you're working with Blue Hill and and experimentation and, and successes and failures, tell me a little bit more about that. What does that actually look like on a day-to-day level? What it looks like is it's sort of heightened. There's enough trust and confidence in the design of this little community that we have here to a certain extent, partially because everybody's so curious and is is self-educating and and educating each other. We set a little bit of higher bar for ourselves in some ways in that because it's a nonprofit, because it's this very successful restaurant, we can get out of the safe zone that most of us as farmers feel a little bit strapped to. Like it's hard to take a risk when you're really feeling threatened about a margin or if you only have a couple of minutes to explain everything about your farm while you're off of it at a market which, you know, of course, farmer's markets are huge value. But part of this is kind of getting everybody to think even a little bit deeper beyond that farm-to-table design of the farmers are there and they're being asked to come into the cities and come into the communities to sell again. But really the loyalty of people coming back again, you know, are they going to show up in the rain? Will this chef just decide that he's going to take all of one thing and leave the rest and You know, what we're really, the beauty in this thing is trying to really design a more responsible relationship between the consumer and the farmer. And I like the terminology of considering this idea of cuisine, is that cuisine is the product of this ebb and flow or call and response that happens where we're caring for the ecology of this place. We're taking care of this land base that we have, and it's putting out so much product in the, in the process. We can grow all kinds of things. And the more, the better, I suppose, diversity and all this quality. And on the other side, we want a customer who is able to really change with that season. And they've done some cool things. So like uh, in order for us to meet some of these ecological goals that we've set for ourselves, the restaurant had to to a certain degree, dissolve their menu. And they don't have a standard menu. The menu is constantly changing. There's dishes that are changing all the time in that way. What that allows us to do is really try to cater toward that creative dish that maybe we want to pick this product smaller. Maybe these carrots are better served for the way that you're trying to get this story perceived on the plate. Why don't we grow them to suit that? grow them smaller, change the method to suit that cuisine. And then the response is maybe, oh, that was really great, but what about color? What about a flavor? What about the story? How deep is the story? So we return that by trialing different things. And, you know, the fact that we can take a risk because we know that on the other side, it's actually going to be greeted with great interest. And I think is a a really important part of catalyzing change in the food system is that when the customer is kind of expecting the same thing all the time, it puts us a little bit in a, in a supermarket kind of mentality and I think is restricting. One of the things that I noted on your website was you have a section of it called cover crops. It's what's for dinner. 
Yeah, there are some examples here of things that we've fooled around with in the past that were really just, again, that's the cover crop piece is actually one of those things that kind of breaks the molds. For years, we were working out in the fields, and, you know, we, cover crop is a major part of the way we manage our systems and long rotations and all sorts of different crops and cover crop. And I would always get this pushback that was like, well, can't we just eat that? Why, why do you need the cover crop? And our story about that and all, I think, all good farmers who are using cover crops see it as a rest period, as a soil stabilizing moment, as a renutrification of the soil. And this rest period is so valuable. And the, the choice for those cover crops is all for the soil. And we're happy to see that value. You know, we're not going to put a huge amount of effort in it, so we don't expect a lot back financially. But what we look forward to in the return from a cover crop is obviously the soil condition, the potential of fertility that's there by growing this set of crops just for the soil. And that's all good. And that's a very important and true story. But on top of it, that story can actually be told rather than it being the backstory, it can actually be represented on the table. You know, clover leaves can be used in greens and milk oats that were to be cut essentially just to, as a nurse crop can be dried and made to tea. There, you know, there's all kinds of products that can be drawn off the cover crop that, you know, maybe it's only a small percentage of what's out there in the field, but using it and sharing that with the community in some way and getting them to find that there's alternate uses for things, it actually ends up, you know, there's a little bit of financial return for that, but most importantly, there's awareness because people realize that what was otherwise just sort of a back-of-house operation is now really up in front of them. They're like, oh, interesting. Clovers, or why do you plant oats when you try to get your clovers set and oh, that's really interesting that you can eat these little young shoots or buckwheat leaves or buckwheat flowers or things like that. So we get this great benefit for people. We get the great benefit for the pollinators and everything, and we get still the benefit for the soils. So that's why that piece of it, the, using the cover crops to, to show that it's feeding the soil, it's feeding the habitats, it's feeding people too. And it's given us a lot of cool ideas about ways we grow grain, actually, because I wasn't growing grain at all, really. I was interested in doing it, but I couldn't see the economics. Until I saw grain in the way that I looked at growing grains as nurse crops for cover crops, like oats to get a good stand of clover, say, or uh, barley to get a good stand of alfalfa or something that will grow them up. And in our soils here, we had a lot of cattle. It was an old dairy. And then a breeding facility for some cattle. And so there's a lot of manure and high phosphorus in our fields from from a previous management. So actually the grains help us to sort of soak up some of the phosphorus too. So we ended up actually allowing the grains to go to full head with undersown clovers and we're getting our grain crops essentially off a cover crop block. And to me, there it means a lot to the system to rationalize why we need these things, what the service of a grain is to a system, and how you could then in the end use that as part of the meal and tell that story. And it's not just by itself, you know, wheat is for making bread, but 
wheat and all these grains are, are for building habitat, for improving soils, and essentially another piece of soil health. You mentioned the livestock on the farm. I mean, that the farm has a history of livestock that predates the time that you've been there. But then you guys also do a fair amount of livestock production, right? We do, yeah. And that's grown over the years um, as we've taken on the management of other state lands and, and worked on helping to manage some other properties and that sort of thing. Our flocks and herds have grown a bit. So just to put it all out there, we have a grassland program that's on about 350 acres of park preserve land, and that is essentially managed with a herd of Devon and Angus cattle. We have uh, about 35 animals there, and we have a flock of sheep with about 100 ewes, so they're all lambed out, so there's probably close to 300 animals out there. And we raise goats to do trail maintenance and brush removals with uh, 30 Kikos. So that's the grazing program. And then we raise pasture-raised, waste-fed pigs, a small number. We raise between about 60 and 80 a year to do some forest remediation. We raise hens, about 1,000 hens right now on pasture and uh, moving eggmobiles. And we raise ducks also on pasture in sliding hoop houses. And, well, we also have bees. I'm sitting here next to some fresh comb that just got harvested today. We have about 22 hives of bees. So, yeah, we have we have a sort of a mix of animals for different purposes on the landscape here. And most importantly, the farm team as a whole is kind of a big integrated group. So, to sort of bring them both together, we also have a, a fairly significant compost operation, and we do a lot of uh, waste-fed and, and composting through all of the facility we have here. So a lot of the food waste is for the animals, and whatever's not for animals goes to compost. We manage here and uh, sell a lot of compost off-site for other farms and landscapers and home gardeners and that kind of thing. Is the livestock operation integrated with the vegetables other than as a waste management tool? It does integrate in. And there are a lot of things that restrict that. Obviously, gap rules restrict a lot of the mixing. So there are some rotations that we have. One in particular, there's a, a rotation that I've been working on for several years. That's a We call it a four-course rotation, sort of an old style of what they call a lay rotation that takes pasture, marginal pastures, and takes them out, puts them into grain and clover, and then into an annual production the following year. So it's a year of annual grains and clovers. And into the next year, row crop vegetables, potatoes, and winter squash and garlic. And then it gets put back into mixed forage pasture. And that system is actually pretty brilliant. I think that We've learned so much about how to get the best out of the fertility of some of the better grounds that we have, grounds that can take vegetable production. We'll rotate those pastures into a year of grain and into a year of vegetables. And in the end, we obviously make a, some money off of the vegetables that grow in that because they're really exploiting a lot of that nutrition that was in the pasture. 
But then at the end of the day, without any additions outside of what the animals are working on the grasses or post-cover crop or post-grain crop, it's only in animal manures and seed that gives us the fertility to get back into the pastures again. And we've been really surprised to see the, the great quality of pasture that's coming after we after two years of annuals and then back into this perennial system again. And I think it's a great way to mix livestock and crop production. It's hard to do it in a mixed vegetable field because everything's so close. And what it's done, what we've done in the past is we may take a small group of animals and put them on one of the cover crop blocks, but they have to be really well fenced. There's really not tolerance for crossover. And we do that sometimes, but generally our flocks are, you know, on a larger scale. So using them in these uh, more row crop type systems for us has has been kind of enlightening. It's really an interesting way to use them and, and different, I think, than what we usually think of when we talk about integrating livestock into a market gardening system. Mm, it's more like integrating the market garden into the livestock program. I like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of it on its head. And, you know, I think the importance about that is just really because, you know, we have to take our cues from the nature that's around us. And one of the beauties of being a farmer is that we get to actually experience nature on a daily basis and all of the lessons it teaches us. So the best thing we can do is try to mimic what we see. And what I think is happening is, you know, we have these primary environments like grasslands and woodlands and wetland areas, and then we have vegetables. And vegetables don't fit into any one of those categories. They're mostly just a disturbance in between any one of those. So it's gotten on my mind more and more that the longer I stay in this vegetable field, the less it wants to be a vegetable field. I mean, it's very productive and it functions, and we keep adding minor inputs and things like that. And we're raising it chemical-free, and it's a beautiful vegetable garden that has years to grow. But I also see the glitch in that, in that in the rest of nature, things don't like to stay annual for a long time. They want to go back to something perennial because they need to restructure. And uh, that's been a dilemma for me as a vegetable farmer since it's most of my early practices all in vegetable production. And the more I look at it, the more I see the flaw in that and, and ways of uh, trying to adapt those ideas and use the entire landscape to the advantage of a productive conservation effort. Now, the market for the livestock, and I assume the small grains, is the same as for the vegetables? Is most of those going to Blue Hill? So maybe just to explain our market a little bit. So Stone Barns has thousands of members to the organization, and we have over 100,000 visitors to the site a year just to visit the farm, to participate in activities, to be here for workshops or for retreats or whatever they're coming for. The restaurant is a primary sales outlet for us to sell there in Blue Hill in the city or off of Washington Square Park. But we also have the other half of our sales go to 150 member CSA and to our farm store production. So we sell frozen meats to the farm store. We sell fresh meat 
our grain, because we're not growing a lot of it, generally goes to its experimentation. So we do a lot of seed varietal trials across the board for vegetables and grains. So we have a number of varieties from the Bread Lab, from WSU growing now that are just harvested. And we've all been also been working pretty closely with uh, North Dakota, who's doing some really extraordinary stuff in North Dakota State for grains and, and also particularly barley. So we've been really excited about that stuff. And those projects definitely focus toward the restaurant because in the end it's a small amount of material and they have a great mill in the kitchen and an incredible bread lab of their own to be fussing with this stuff. So we're testing to see how some of these more modern West Coast wheats work over here. Some of these new versions of malting barleys that are just super exciting, how they work. So yes, the grain generally goes toward the restaurant because that's more of a, an innovative project. The animals, though, probably about half and half. We sell through restaurants as whole animal, and we also have uh, an abattoir and a butchery on site. So we do all of our own butchering and packing and run a poultry processing facility, too. So we that's sort of part of our livestock operations, that we have a great group of people working that space for poultry, but also the livestock team. We have a, a handful of butchers on that team that really love their work. That's really great to have that. What a resource. Yeah, we got lucky with that. I mean, the abattoir we built for poultry early on, it's a New York State processing facility, and that we invested in to deal with uh, chickens originally. We, we've sort of shifted from broiler chickens to ducks and turkeys, which I failed to mention before. We raised about 500 turkeys. So the ducks, you know, this keeps us going through the summer. We harvest pretty much every week for about 26 weeks in that space. And then we spend our winter mostly butchering the sheep, the cattle, and pigs, and goats. But, it, you know, we did get lucky that the livestock team that I have right now just actually got interested in working on the farm, mostly because they were butchers before. We have Phil, who's a great livestock farmer and is really great working with pigs, and he kind of runs the show in that space. And Sam's a, a young man that came to us from New York City through a butcher, you're just really interested in learning more about that. And then we have a chef who came out of the kitchen who was working on the meat line and a great butcher in his own right, and he decided to join the livestock team. So that sort of mixing back and forth, it's great to have people that really care about the quality in the end is just as much as they care about the nature and well-being of the animal. I couldn't ask for a better team, really, the, my whole team. So tell me about how that works at Stone Barns, because you talk about a, having a livestock team. You've also got the vegetable operation, and and you also have a pretty strong beginning farmer training program there. So how does all of that mesh together? It is a holistic design. You know, I think it's been an evolution here, as all farms were not just changing our methods on the farm as everything's evolving, but the world is changing around us. And so lots of different people want to learn how to do this. I mean, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised, I guess, at just how many people are still wanting to get into growing. And people that didn't grow up with it, that really recognize the need for change. And so many talented people that I know that have just decided that this was the path in their life. It was a difficult choice, and they just went for it. So, 
You know, I'd say that the growing farmer initiative piece that we have, we have a, we do a, an annual conference and we've had apprentices for many years. It really kind of started from the fact that, you know, my wife Shannon and I came here to start the farm. We had a lot of young people that wanted to work with us that were just naturally interested. And over the years, when we recognized that everybody's interested, that we should start a real program, we could focus on that. So we applied for a USDA beginning farmer and rancher grant. And we have had that grant now for the past six years, and it's helped us to really develop the program. We generally have about nine students a year, and they mix across. We've tried a number of different constellations of this group, but essentially there have been livestock apprentices and field apprentices and greenhouse apprentices and flower apprentices and compost apprentices. But we've kind of gone back to more of a model of uh, holistic that some people really do focus and prefer to focus on some areas. But the reality is that what we're teaching is mixed systems. So we really want this group of farmers, so the apprentices that are with us, to get a sense of the efficiency of work and the mixed systems that are in place, how, what the complementary systems are. You know, rather than solely an egg production, that enterprises kind of work together and share resources. And the more we recognize that from a need to train farmers to be more diverse, we recognize that in ourselves. So I'd, I'd say that the biggest shift over the years has been that we've consolidated our management. So my management team, the farmers that work with me, I mean, I basically do the job of coordinating and kind of conducting this group of enterprises. And I have a great team of people that are specialized in the grazing animals or the poultry or vegetable field or markets or greenhouse. But essentially, we all sit at the same table. And we share resources. And we try to find creative ideas of ways to work with each other or close loops have purchased, you know, buying together. It's sort of a conglomerate of enterprises that works as one farm, and that's how we manage it. So the apprentices just file into that on a daily basis, but we also, with the grant money, have developed ways to bring in all kinds of great speakers, and we do workshops every week that are here for these apprentices, but also open to the rest of the apprentices in the Hudson Valley or New York City, whoever can make it up here. And so we kind of offer just this ongoing track of specialists in the fields, whether those are people like, uh, you know, Sarah Flack as a grazer or or Richard Griswold will come in and do a class on farm economy. We're teaching about marketing. We're teaching about plant anatomy and physiology. We're talking about pathology and plant breeding and uh, poultry raising and And those are kind of mixed with our team. So uh, when I'm looking for farmers, I obviously want people who know and care about what they're doing, but I really especially need people who can translate, that are willing to share what they're learning and to be okay with the fact that our mistakes are the things that we're really learning from best. That's hard, I think. It's hard for a farmer to swallow their pride and, and share mistakes with the people that are learning from them. 
but it's one of the things that we feel is a really important part of this is that we have a strong system. We're confident in our work. We have a set of principles that we're farming toward, and we make a lot of mistakes. And nature does what it needs to do, and we work with that. And so you talk about having a management team. Do you have permanent staff as well, or is it really the management team and then the the farmer trainees? So to get into that, we have the Growing Farmer Initiative area of the farm. Maybe I'll back out of that a little bit and say what Stone Barns is as a center, because we, it is a working community. There's a lot of people here. It's like a village. So my directorship of the farm, I'm one member of an executive team, sort of a team of people that is in this organization. We have a CEO that is working to work across the programmatic and development and agricultural spaces. So then we have directors of program and development and media and finance. And from that, we manage this estate. So we have obviously the facilities of this big building and manage all of the kind of contract, everything from conferences and corporate groups to weddings and all these things that happen here. So we have a staff of administration and development and a programmatic staff that's training, teaching people here all the time. And the Growing Farmer Initiative piece has uh, a couple of people in it that oversee that management. Shannon, my wife, and also Lori Fryer are the two that kind of oversee designing the conference, organizing the process with the farmers in terms of applications and mentoring and organizing these weekly classes and making sure that the group is working as a cohort. So that aspect of it is organized by the GFI team. And it's pretty integrated. Our conversations and decision-making happen both directions from production and also from the educational stance. So it's pretty worked out. It's really important that everybody's really got all of these grounds covered because the program keeps getting more complex every year. So it definitely requires somebody to be a solid owner of each of those pieces. hope that answers your question. Yeah, that does. And then do you actually have then, once you drill down to the production side of things, do you have staff who are permanently on as part of the production crew? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the apprentices file in. They connect as our kind of first-year workforce, and they engage and learn from this team. We're running at production speed, though, so obviously I need my perennial team, and I rely on them. And I would say, you know, that it's sort of the goal to have professional development for everybody who's on my team. Education is not just for the apprentices themselves, but, you know, I have some two- and three-year farmers with me that, you know, have learned so much and are so talented. And I believe that they're the ones that are really, in the end, are going to keep going at this. I mean, the longer you stick with something for a while and get a method and practice, the more you get your legs underneath yourself and have the confidence to go out there and do this. So I think our apprenticeship is great. And often, if the apprentices stay longer, there's a pretty good chance that they'll keep going Uh, We have a pretty good percentage of people that come through the program that continue on farming, whether they are doing some assistant managing work or they're apprenticing at another farm and sort of continuing on their track. 
But my management team are all seasoned farmers. Basically, I have kind of flanked the way it's organized. That Shane Hardy is uh, my manager of the grasslands as a whole, and his job is really to oversee the grass, the soils, and all the monitoring and all the sort of interaction that happens on that group. He also is in charge of all the composting and, and nutrient flow. And with him on that team is uh, Mike Peterson, who's a great livestock manager, oversees the cattle and sheep and goats, and Phil, who looks over all the poultry, the processing facility, and the pigs. On the vegetable side, Jason Grower is my uh, field manager. He also oversees all the marketing. So he's sort of in Blue Hill on a regular basis every week, pitching new ideas. Uh, He oversees a lot of the plant breeding work and seed trials that we do, which are pretty extensive. And he coordinates an assistant field manager and our greenhouse manager and basically just keeps us all on the same page in terms of production because we're there's product coming from a lot of different places and it all has to be coordinated for CSA, for market stands, for multiple outside restaurants, for Blue Hill, for event ABC. And so that's kind of the core group of us. And then we also oversee the landscape and everything too. So we have a obligation for uh, an edible landscape and formal gardens and that kind of stuff. All right. With that, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Jack Algier from Stone Barn Center. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, and even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort D and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend utterly on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost, and you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very intentional about the inputs they use in their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. And the same goes for everything else part. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont Compost Potting Soils has a purpose, whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean. Fully composted compost. Top quality ingredients and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com And we're back with Jack Algier from Stone Barn Center. So, Jack, I'd like to dig in just a little bit more into the vegetable operation, since that's what the Farmer to Farmer podcast is really focused on. 
how many acres of vegetables are you actually looking at there? Well, we have about eight acres of mixed vegetables and a half acre of greenhouse crop that is, uh, I would just look at it slightly different. And the field veg is uh, sort of broken up into a few different spots on the farm. We have a five-acre parcel in one field, and then, um, as I mentioned before, we have this lay rotation that has two-acre blocks, and we have a terrace garden that is focused on hoop house, sliding hoop houses for cucumbers, tomatoes, flowers, and, and more season extension stuff. So the sliding greenhouses are in addition to that 22,000 square foot greenhouse, right? Yes. We have a couple of small sliders that are over the ground. So maybe uh, I'll start with the greenhouses to say that all the greenhouse production is in soil and it's a compost-based, non-fertilizer-based program. We've been operating year-round in these spaces for the past 15 years with no spray regimen and great production, honestly. So it's really a a special place. And when we first were building the greenhouse, the choice to build this very large gutter-connect house and put soil in it, I think, was uh, a little bit revolutionary and a great step. Um, You had mentioned Elliot Coleman, who really early on was a great mentor and advisor for me. still continues to be that. And it was really Elliot's suggestion to put this house up, which was a bold move because, you know, he's been working in sliding houses and small houses for a long time. Many of us out, a lot of your listeners probably too, have had a lot of experiences in hoop houses and Gothic type hoop houses, sliding houses, things like that, and relatively inexpensive spaces that can be paid back quickly with one spinach crop or something like that. But when you go ahead and build some large gutter connect house that was really designed for bedding plants or hydroponic or something like that, where there's like this really uh, huge infrastructural upfront cost, but a return, a fast return, it was definitely a risk for us to take this on. And I had enough skepticism myself to really dig in and try to make this work and try to figure out some economics around how to run a very efficient, healthy soil-based greenhouse. And I think we've continued to do that. We've learned so much about how to grow, how to make it efficient for the farmers that are in there, how to design a complex long-term crop rotation in an indoor environment, and how to get the best out of the structure while really reducing our energy load and improving the fertility and health of the environment. I think that's what makes it really special is that Soil greenhouses are very different than anything else because of the biotic relationship inside that house. It functions like a terrarium. It's not just a warehouse with plants. It's a living environment, and the rules are different. I mean, I grew up in greenhouse environments and went to school for plant science and greenhouse systems, and I really uh, was jaded by what was happening inside greenhouse systems. And felt after working with some biodynamic farmers in Rhode Island, where I'm from, I thought, you know what, we could definitely do this. We can definitely take some of these ideas we have and trust that this environment doesn't need to be some sort of sterile environment, but rather quite the opposite, a living, growing environment. 
And so that was that. However, you know, when in the first years, I felt like it was going to be really important that we put up these sliding hoop houses just to show the sort of juxtaposition in cost and productivity and potential, which they are very, all of those things vary. So those houses, I built two pretty much right away. There's a 21 by 64 and a 21 by 48 that basically rotate across five different spaces. And generally speaking, each time the house moves, it has a new... We use one specifically for sun gold tomatoes on trellis, and then uh, the other house moves, and we do cucumbers and then uh, late alliums and spinach in the winter in those houses and uh, purple sprout of broccolis and things like that for winter production. Those are not heated at all. The large greenhouse actually is heated, but only to freezing temperature. So our winter rotation is a selection of plants that can all handle a frost, all handle a freeze, but generally we keep it from freezing. And uh, that keeps the pathogen pressures down, and it also greatly improves the quality of the crop. You mentioned a a long-term crop rotation that you've put in place in that large gutter connect facility that's a hard thing to do with greenhouse crops because there aren't nearly as many greenhouse crops as there are outdoor crops for most people, for most farmers and the way they're doing it. So That's you- true. You can get stuck in the mustard and lettuce trap all day. And, you know, it seems like that's what you want to do. But if you stick with growing mustards inside a hoop house, you will definitely continue to fight flea beetles and white flies and everything else that are going to come at you. And it sort of forces you to enter some kind of a chemical regimen of even an organic pathway, if you keep rotating the same things, you're just perpetuating the same problems. So the crop rotation in that space is critical. It's not to say that, you know, still the brassicas to a large degree are one of the most profitable and functional families for greenhouse systems, but they're certainly not the only. There's enough variety in those fam in that family in particular and in other families that allow us to split rotations. So maybe Brassica rapa is not in the same rotation as the Oleaceas, that they, you know, radish crop grows here with the lettuce, but we grow this Asian uh, sai in this other place for winter, and, you know, they skip. So the rotation is 10 years, and it's split basically into three groups seasonally. So... To give you an idea what's happening now, in our summer season, the challenges of a summer greenhouse are that it can get hot, so growing certain things in there, probably better off to be outside. The house itself is physically expensive. It has its overhead, so the crop that's in there has to be able to pay its rent, essentially. It's a square foot per day rent, and the crop has to be able to cover that. So, you know, growing something like squash or something inside that house probably never make it. In some cases, if you're growing like really baby specialty squash or something like that, it could eke by. Cucumbers make it, tomatoes make it, flowers, lettuces, mustards, and I think there's a pretty good selection of stuff that's in there. Also, this time of year, we have one bay full of ginger and turmeric. That's been a great addition, all the crops that we grow in the space are basically non-competitive with our field crops. When you say non-competitive with your field crops, that they're, they're things that do better inside than they do outside. Yes and no. I mean, a couple of things. I would say 
you know, if we grow carrots inside and carrots outside, we have to sell two different kinds of carrots. And so they better be really different from each other because the carrots from the greenhouses are going to cost twice as much easily than the carrots we could grow outdoors. So it really doesn't make sense at certain seasons if we have this crop in another place for us to grow it. So, of course, the value of season extension is there. So starting something really early or having it go late into the fall or have it for the winter is really valuable. But if we can grow it outside, we grow it outside. The first thing is grow it outdoors, totally exposed. Then put a cover on it. Then put a house on it. Then heat that house. Whatever it is, the sort of steps of value and competition. So the non-competitive is really that if we do have a crop in the field and in the greenhouse, we can distinguish the difference between them as two separate products, even though they may be a similar vegetable. Got it. That makes sense. So that, that Gutter Connect house, does that have the ability to be open to the environment? Yeah, it's a, a fully convertible house, so it opens up to the outside. I mean, essentially, in the summertime, it's open all the time. It, we allow the house to open at 60 degrees. So it's getting full sun. It's got 44 roofs on it, so you can imagine it's a large range. And having full sun does a great thing for the climate itself, obviously, because one of the big differences between a hoop house and a gutter connect at any size is that you have the capacity to allow the air out the top. And even if you have vent fans on a hoop house, you still can't cool it down enough because the, the heat gets trapped up in the top. A house like this, the large gutter conduct, is actually at the same outdoor temperature, if not below, because there's a slight bit of shade from the infrastructure. So in the end, it's a superior growing environment to a hoop house in many ways. And in the winter, it's the same way, because you have the cubic area. The physics for greenhouse systems is that when you have more cubic area, height and area around you, then the plant has, and the atmosphere has more time to cool off and warm up. And the plant likes time. That differential and temperature puts a lot of strain on a plant if it's too quick. So the quality of the crops, the quality of the soil, the pressure for pest issues or things like that can really be mitigated by the atmosphere just as much as it can be by the soil. Within that same house, we have a propagation space, a 2,000 square foot propagation space that's sort of quadrant off from the rest of the house that is sort of nursery for all crop spaces. And what kind of techniques are you using for propagation? Are you cell trays or soil blocks or, or something totally off the wall? We use a combination of things for the propagation. Depends on the crop. We are growing in the prop house pretty much all year long because we have greenhouse and field crops and there's a lot of extension stuff. I'll start with this. One of the mediums we use to do a lot of seed starting, especially more difficult seeds, is uh, sans sphagnum, which is just a sort of an even blend of milled sphagnum moss and coarse sand. And that's a material that I think is really critical to a lot of the transplanting work that we do because it's our first selection. It's just this was a method that I learned from Heinz Grockey from uh, Meadowbrook Farm in, in Rhode Island and where we were working with a lot of herbs and starting more difficult seeds, flowers, and herbs, what we found is that mix is actually 
critical for some things. It's the potential for speeding up germination and the quality of germination for a lot of plants starts with that mix. And then we'll go from there to sometimes cells. Uh, we use deep 50s and things like that, but we do use a fair amount of soil blocks. We actually designed a soil block specifically for ourselves because the ones that we were using were just using too much soil for ourselves. So we decided to uh, design a smaller one that allowed for more more in a tray and one that actually fits into a 1020 tray so that we can use this sort of standard tray for the soil blocks also. And that we use for all of the two and three week transplants. So basically all the brassicas and all the lettuces and things like that, very early beets, sometimes we'll do that for a quick start. And then otherwise, um, we're doing different techniques for every crop. Timing-wise, generally speaking, all of our planting and, and operations follow moon cycle, astrological cycle for our timing. So a lot of this, the plan each year is pretty regimented in terms of when our start dates are the lots. I have one person that oversees propagation, and he just sticks to the program. He's, he's very organized and I think it's one of the most critical positions on the whole farm, and it takes a person who is really focused on detail because it will make the quality for the rest of the farm for the rest of the year. And so it's definitely an area we put a lot of energy into making it, making it right. Maybe another mention is we have a lot of thermal zones, different temperature zones in that space, mostly facilitated by radiant systems. And the radiant system is actually heated by a compost system. So kind of a cool energy-saving program that we have and a little bit of an experiment that turned into a great energy conservation for us and allows us to heat beds to basically four different temperatures so that we can kind of keep the crops moving and eventually get them outside or in the greenhouse or wherever they're destined Tell me a little bit more about that system. If you talk about heating it with compost, I'm curious how that works. So we have a pretty solid compost, sort of a turned aerated compost, physical aerated compost that ran for many years. And the more we started dealing with the slaughter waste and food waste in particular, the more we started to get into using forced air systems. We worked with a company called O2 Compost in uh, Oregon. Peter Moon is his name there. And Peter sort of helped us in early days, maybe 12, 13 years ago, to build this first forced air system. And it's good because it pushes air from the bottom. of. We have four 10-yard bins that we manage food waste every weekend, year-round. There's a pipe underneath the bin with a perforated wood floor, and the air gets pushed up through for a minute every 20 minutes or so. And what it does is it uh, replicates the turning process and you end up with 170 degree temperature from that pile constantly for 28 days. And it's clockwork, you know, really it doesn't matter what week of the year it is, 165 to 175 degree temperature consistently for 28 days and after 28 days it drops off. And some of that has to do with how we're blending making the actual material that goes in there. But every week, every Tuesday, we reset, take one out, put one in. And it goes for four weeks in that bin. So we've been doing this for years, and 
there was all this interest in how we could extract some of the temperatures. So we started building other vessels and trying to find ways to put copper tubing inside it and run water through that system. And there have been many iterations of this. And we eventually went to learning more about the thermodynamics of this thing, partially because we have a group that we call Slow Tools. That is a group of engineers and manufacturers and farmers that kind of get together to uh, discuss process, engineering processes and, and tool design. One of the years we brought on a young intern from Purdue University who was uh, working on the Formula One team there. And she came and got interested in that project. So I gave that to her to really look at the math and try to figure out the physics of what was some of these designs that we were kind of just hacking at, just guessing that this pipe would pull this temperature off and that. So she did a bunch of probing and from there, we realized that we could actually build this modular bin. It's basically a double high picking bin. And we use a coiled copper cylinder that we built in-house that has like a rebar skeleton. And we can drop that right into the center of the, a mixed material compost. It, it doesn't have to be food waste. It can be leaves and grass and can be all vegetable-based. But the key is that you run, you force air from underneath and in that vessel that you're setting up this coil that's really extracting as much heat from inside the core of that compost as can be. And then we just ended up using hydraulic quick connects and connect it to a pressurized radiant system. So rather than a radiant system that usually has a water heater that's keeping that water hot to run through the system, we essentially bypass the water heater with this compost system so that the water heater just never fires. It just acts as a vessel for uh, retention. And, you know, as long as the compost bin is switched out once every two to four weeks, it maintains that temperature. And you can plug it into a greenhouse radiant system. You could plug it into a sous vide bath. You could plug it into a hot tub. I mean, kind of anything you want to do. Wow. That's pretty cool. Tell me more about the slow tools group because that's something I feel like's gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years and you meant oh that's good to hear yeah yeah well I think you know at its heart the idea of getting the the empowerment back into the farmers and engineers and a mixed group again this came as a really around the table there again Elliot has a lot to do with this and uh, Barry Griffin who's an engineer out of Boston and Johnny Seeds, who sort of played also another big role in this. There's a, a range of different people in the first meetings as we started to reach out to guys like Josh Volk out on the West Coast there, running all his bicycle stuff, and Ron Colsa, who you probably know, who worked on uh, electric G conversions and uh, CoolBot and all that stuff. And Adam Lemieux, who's doing brilliant work for tool design and sourcing for Johnny's along with a bunch of other folks that just Michael McGowan, who does carts and tools in Oregon, just some of these first meetings were all just about an open design process. How do you get an engineer to come in and listen to the needs of a farmer and then hear what a manufacturer might say about how important it is to have a supply chain in place for repair and things like that. So it just becomes this really rich conversation and takes what I think has been brilliantly executed through FarmHack and helping to maybe engage these engineers in the R&D world 
In fact, where I think this is all going is really more towards driving the young group of engineers that are out there to think about intimate relationship with their tools and technology, which I think is like probably the biggest obstacle for us to get over in agriculture is that uh, a lot of the technology that's been developed over the past 75 years has been designed to extricate us, to take us away from relation to the farm, put us up on a seat above the space inside a cab or on a computer. And while that's brilliant technology, you know, we really can't be separated like that. The role of farmers is as stewards and caretakers of the land. And it's great if we could make that job more precise and less painful on our bodies, but not at the cost of removing us from the relationship to the plant or the soil or the birds or whatever it is that it's sort of a distraction to. Because we depend, our agricultural system kind of depends on the mastery of the people who are doing it. So equipping them with really new, modern, innovative things that are out there that can do both improve the efficiency of the farmer and increase their intimacy to the work they're doing, I think is good for all of us. If we could get there, and also if we could really turn on this new generation of young engineers to touch the soil again, to trust the natural systems and to learn some lessons, we might see stuff like we saw from Bell Labs or something like that. You know, the majority of those guys were all farmers. That's why that was such a successful design circle. So we're trying to, you know, stimulate that and get more people at the table instead of just the clunking around we're doing in the sheds. You know, we're pretty good welders. We have a pretty good sense of what we're doing in the shop. We know how to source things, but I still think there's a lot more room for development. And so that's what Slow Tools really has been. And I think hopefully everybody will see it keep growing and become more of a forum for conversation and at best really start to see some really good technology applied to small farms. And can you maybe talk about one or two things that are your favorites that have come out of the Slow Tools project? The best thing has been thinking about it as a design process. So there are really cool things that have come out. I mean, some of the things from the meetings is that we get to meet everybody who's out there in the world designing these things. Like I mentioned Michael McGowan before. Michael is in Oregon. He's got this great company, Carts and Tools. He was working at Los Alamos. He's a brilliant engineer, retired from that kind of work, and just made this effort to take some other technologies and put them together. And so what he did was got the idea of using hub motors from bicycle technology and applying them to these hand tools. The same way that using drill batteries, connecting them to like the tilter and some of the the harvesters and things, using lithium ion drills as power sources for different tools is pretty brilliant. So I like, I love these ideas of adapting stuff from other industries. Just imagine this. Since the 1950s, Small agricultural products have gone to the side and and all the energy has gone to big ag stuff. But at the same time, from a scale model, there's been massive advances in things like zero-turn electric lawnmowers, electric wheelchair technology, motocross, forklifts, bicycles, you name it. And all these things are really in the same scale realm 
as we could use on the small farm, just none of them are adapted. Oh, and for that matter, electric power drill technology like DeWalt or Milwaukee or someone that has been working on construction, but those concepts could be easily applied to a small thresher or a seeder or a weeder. So it's interesting that we haven't applied those same kind of rules to a small agricultural system. So that's why I love these ideas that are like adapting a hub motor to a cultivating machine. Or Ogan is a good example. Horace Clemens has done this great work down in Alabama and uh, basically built a decentralized open source tractor like a G and has a number of different people working on this and adapting it and sending. I mean, I know for us, we've chopped this thing in a bunch of different ways. And each time we do it, we send him back new pictures and he keeps improving his design. And what I really like about that model is the thought process that has come out of this is that, well, if you want to decentralize manufacturing, all the parts can be ubiquitous. There can be things you can get off the shelf, whether you're in Guatemala or in Nigeria or in New York, that the same actuators you can find, the same basic parts, steel, and put these things together so that they're easy to repair, that they could be built in a standard local welding shop and sold just like that local guy sells a snowplow. To me, it's just part of the infrastructural development of small farming getting better is that we have tools and systems of tools that are easy to get a hold of, that are efficient, that are not that expensive, and that are easy to repair. It seems like something that's related to what we're talking about in the tool world here is the work that you guys have done with seeding trials and breeding projects as well. Yeah, similar. And in a live, a uh, more <laughs> living way, right? I think that in the same way, just the curiosity of what's out there in the world has been what's driven that. It's great to have a customer who is always asking for something different, which is provokes me to search. I have my own particular interest in seed saving and been doing that for most of my life. So there's some things that I'm just personally curious about. I, the way I look at it is Every crop that we have out there growing in the field is being challenged and can potentially be replaced when we find that one thing about it from something new that can resolve that problem. And we could do that potentially by saving it. We breed some of our own things. We save old, very old corn variety and old soy. We have some new varieties of peas, a number of different things that are sort of in-house these winter Chinese Wawa Gai Choi, some very interesting vegetables that we, you know, are exclusively bred here. What's really interesting is that there's these layers of going to a seed company and looking through that catalog and seeing what's there and just sort of uh, based on a couple of sentences, choosing that crop that you're going to grow. And so it felt like it was that much more important just to do some investigative reporting as a farmer, you know, like, I want to know more about what I'm dealing with. Where did this come from? Why was this bred in this way? Why would you as a seed company be selling this to me rather than something else? And doesn't always say that in the description. And so we felt like we should start kind of snowballed from there where we just started 
calling up seed companies and asking them if we could participate in trials for new things, and we'd be glad to give them an evaluation. We grow them out. We do field trials, and we see how they compete in the field as in production standards. And then we give them a full evaluation with chefs, with children, with whoever will uh, fill out an evaluation card, essentially. And then we share that publicly and back with the company. And what we thought was just kind of more for ourselves to learn about it turned out to be fairly interesting to the seed companies because they weren't getting a lot of clear, direct response from consumers. They were getting a lot of sort of industrial response, but not so much from the uh, small-scale direct market grower. So then we found that was just a, another a potential to get into that. And so now we work with you know several dozen seed companies and a handful of uh, open-source breeders from universities to help do some participatory breeding and stuff like that. Very cool. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or email. Use Farmers Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plans at any time. Check out a demo video and Farmers Web guide to working with wholesale buyers at FarmersWeb.com. Jack, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool on the farm, I think, is my hand. <laughs> I have to say, I was thinking about this. You pitched this question, and I thought, you know what? I have a lot of tools. I have sheds full of tools and tractors, and I really think they all have such specific functions. But when I start thinking about it, I just keep thinking simpler and simpler. And back to that slow tool idea, I think the thing that we're all trying to replicate is our hand. It's like the best... When you get around a plant and you're moving around it, you have all the dexterity, you have all the mind-to-hand connection. It's 100%. And as soon as you put a tool in between you and that, it starts to bring that down a little bit. So I love all the precision weeding tools. I think that a hand weeding tool with good posture is what it looks like to be a good modern upright farmer is to care for your health in this process and good precision tools like wire weeders and things like that I think are uh, honestly uh, probably my favorite thing when I'm tired of using my hand. (laughs) (laughs) And Jack, what's your favorite crop to grow? This question reminds me of Monty Python a little bit. It's hard to pick a color here, but I'll say that I think my favorite crop is fennel. And uh, I think it is that because it's such a satisfying crop to do well. Have you ever grown fennel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's something about it. When it really bulbs up nice and you get the right variety at the right moment, 
and in all these trial varieties, I always feel like it's so rare that people can tell the difference between fennels. If you know, if you want to have a, a season of fennel production, you have to change varieties like every two weeks. And the customer will never notice that you change variety unless you tell them. But it's so much work on this end to really align them all. And we could grow seven or eight different varieties through the course of summer so that we have them available. And it's such a wonderful, challenging vegetable, and it's delicious and versatile and everything else, too, in the end. But I think it's uh, uh, misunderstood or, or less than completely understood, I think, for, for a lot of growers that have tried this, and certainly for customers to recognize what the some of the complexities of that crop are. So I really do like that one. And I just like to eat it. At this time of year, I think a fennel salad with a little bit of lemon and olive oil is just about heaven. Hard to beat. Definitely hard to beat. Yeah. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Yeah, I think uh, really if I were to go back, I would just tell myself to uh, trust myself, make a mistake, make the mistake because that's the thing that's going to give you the inspiration for what's next. And the, the sooner I do that, the more inspired I am and the more curious I am to keep going. All right. Jack Algier, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for uh, taking the time. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 174 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Algier. That's A-L-G-I-E-R-E. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And if you like us, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. That's why Jack's on the show. I'll do my best to get your suggestions on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Mm-hmm.